I'm Chris Cutler. This is Probes, part four. slide that goes nowhere. Jean-Claude Risset perfected this audio illusion, which is the sonic analogue of MC Escher's Impossible Staircase. He developed it for Pierre Allais' 1968 play about a pilot reliving the bombing of Hiroshima. The pilot is spiralling into madness, the bomb is endlessly falling. This is an extract from that music, Computer Suite for Little Boy, which was also the first substantial work to be entirely computer synthesised. where alternative tuning probes, for the most part, explored harmony effects, drawing attention to the play of dissonance and consonance. Probes into sliding pitches seem to lean more towards the creation of melody effects, drawing attention to the individual trajectories of the moving lines. I'll close this probe with a highly successful and mainstream use of portamenti.
practice of playing a normal guitar with a steel or glass slide was first noted in Hawaii sometime in the 19th century. The guitar was laid flat in front of the player and played from above. One hand picked the strings at the body end, the other moved to slide over the neck. Because chord shapes could not be formed, a number of different tunings were employed, many of them in open chords. By the early 20th century, a number of black blues artists were using slides in a similar way, except they would hold the guitar in the conventional position with the slide, often the neck of a bottle, slipped over one finger, while the others stopped the frets in the usual way. Also, the West African diddly bow. This is a one-stringed instrument made for children, also played with a slide. In the early 20th century, it was in common use in the American South and may well have influenced the bottleneck style. Although Hawaiian lap steel music was well known on the American mainland by then, and commercial recordings had been in circulation since at least 1915. In fact, the first electric guitar was a solid body version of the lap steel, the instrument we now call a Hawaiian guitar. Thanks mostly to the innovations of a number of technically-minded performers, that rather primitive solid body evolved over a period of about 15 years into the highly sophisticated pedal steel instrument we know today. In their popular forms, instrumental portamenti are never unsettling. If anything, they invoke a kind of controlled delirium. There are dips and peaks, but we're safe inside them. I'm going to play the whole of this next piece because this instrument is routinely ignored outside its own little niche, and yet it's certainly no less subtle or exquisite than the Ande Martineau, and its great players are really great. This is Lloyd Green playing Farewell Party.
And just to praise the instrument a little further and to show something of its immense versatility, here's Mike Pelowin playing Debussy's L'Après-Midi d'Enfant. This is taken from the middle section. And lastly, and more probe-like, this is from Susan Alcorn's Slendra.
In rock, the use of slide guitar is rather localized and mostly adopts the style made popular in Chicago in the 1950s, although some exponents, like George Harrison, stick closer to Hawaii. exception was Sid Barrett, who took a more experimental approach. And the Australian David Allen, who mixed bottleneck and bow techniques, playing on the neck with a long glass or metal rod. Here's a short extract from his Faux Hat Digs Holes in Space, recorded in 1971. first. Perhaps the leading theorist and activist for extended portamenti, anti-dating just about everyone I've spoken about so far, was the futurist painter Luigi Rossolo. I speak of him now because arguably he made an even greater, in fact a groundbreaking probe, into our next territory, which is noise or unpitched sound. Like Granger, Rossolo argued from nature, pointing out that sounds in the world are not limited to arbitrary pitches, but are infinite in their gradations. Winds howl and waves swell. But unlike Granger, or anyone else at the time, Rossolo extended his argument to embrace the whole industrial cacophony of the modern world. 
As a futurist, he wanted not only to be done with the academy and to celebrate the racket of aeroplanes, factories, cities and mechanical warfare, but also to bring the everyday and the aesthetic back together, to erase the barrier separating musical and non-musical sounds. Although Rosolo wrote about music, it was a transformed idea of music, away from pitched instruments and their tidy, sensitive sonorities, and in their place, a music of noises. And since no means existed to achieve that, he designed and built, with the help of fellow painter Ugo Piatti, a noise orchestra, a family of ingenious mechanical and acoustic devices that would emit controllable howls, roars, crackles, buzzes and whistles. He called them intonarumori. In his manifesto, The Art of Noises, published in 1913, he identified five categories of noise. Roars, hissing roars, thunder, explosions, bang and booms whistling, hissing and puffing, whispers, murmurs, mumbling, muttering and gurgling, screeching, creaking, rustling, buzzing, crackling and scraping, noises obtained by beating on metals, wood, skins, stones and pottery, and finally shouts, screams, shrieks, wails, hoots, howls, death rattles and sobs. There were in all 27 varieties of internal rumori, their names determined by the sounds they emitted, howlers, thunderers, cracklers, buzzers, gurglers, and so on. Many worked on variations of the hurdy-gurdy principle, which is to say they used an abrasive wheel to excite a string, which in turn resonated a drumhead attached to an acoustic horn. Shifting pitches and portamenti were controlled by a lever located on the top of each machine. the graphic score to orchestrate them. In the few years after 1913, Rosolo toured his noise orchestra in Europe, sparking the obligatory outraged riots, but his exceptionally prescient ideas, not really taken up again until the development of music concrete some 30 years later, won him no followers. Varese and Stravinsky both expressed public interest, but neither took their interest any further, and then the instruments themselves were lost in the chaos of World War II. And since the futurist had failed to see the future in the phonograph, Rosolo's inventions were never adequately documented, although two recordings were made in 1926, featuring pieces written by his brother Antonio for a mixed ensemble of normal and noise instruments. They tell us little. The music is conventional, and the internal rumori are difficult to hear. But here's a short snatch from Serenata. 
Happily, the first of several new sets of instruments, although only five out of the 27, was constructed in 1977 for Viennese Biennale, using photographs, drawings, schematics and a great deal of guesswork. But at least now we have a better idea of what the public was confronted with back in 1913. As for the compositions, most of the original scores were lost along with the instruments, but seven bars of Rosolo's Awakening of a City were published in a magazine and therefore survive. This only surviving fragment was performed at the Venice Biennale. Until now, we've been looking at probes into the systematic recalibration of pitch steps and the complete abolition of pitch steps. But with Rosolo, we step away from pitches altogether and enter the world of noise. That is, sounds that are, or were in 1913 when Rosolo wrote, by definition unmusical. Rosolo proposed to make them musical by organising them and the ideas he set out in his manifesto for the total reconstruction of musical aesthetics has influenced just about every generation since, anticipating and influencing the work of Edgar Varese, Artemi Avramov, John Cage, Pierre Schaeffer, Murray Schaeffer, the soundscape community, and countless others down to the present. Embedded in Rosolo's futurist iconoclasm was the suggestive notion, though he never said as much, that the essence of music lay not in pitch relations, but in the way sounds were aesthetically deployed. At least half a century would pass before that idea achieved any broad support, although probes into the wider use of unpitched sounds, especially in the form of percussion, and into the exploration of exotic and complex timbres, did powerfully extend the range of sounds that could be accepted as musical. Which, in turn, narrowed and made more interesting the possible meanings of noise. There's a negotiated ambiguity today between the idea of noise as an absolute quality, implied in the descriptor noise music, for instance, and as something wholly contextual, a statement about whether a noise is wanted or unwanted. A helicopter may be noise when it's flying over your heart, recital. But it's an instrument when it appears in Stockhausen's helicopter quartet. <laughs> sound is an objective category, noise is a cultural descriptor. Some plants we call flowers, others weeds. The distinction is ours, not nature's, and it's a distinction that changes over time. Noise is just a word, and it means whatever the community using it feels comfortable using it to mean. 
most new music is initially denounced as noise, and most noises have at one time or another been claimed for music. Probes into unpitched sound will take under two aspects, timbre and amplitude. We'll start with timbre because probes into timbre are concerned not so much with the notes as with the precise and particular grain of the sounds heard. In the 16th century, music was taught alongside mathematics and astronomy, and behind it lay the notion of cosmic geometry and the music as the spheres. Music was mathematics expressed in time, and the work of composition was work with number, divine ratios, and the great ladder of being. In such a system, it's the underlying patterns that matter, because they embody an indivisible truth linking the soul to the perfection of the cosmos. And in this respect, a score and its cosmic resonance are both, like Plato's forms, eternal and unchanging. They are preserved no matter what instrument is used to sound them. That's not to say that instrumentation doesn't matter, just that music is rooted in its form rather than its sound. Sound is more like a clothing. Anything from this period, Vivaldi's Four Seasons for instance, will retain its essential character no matter how it is clothed in sound.
This is no longer so obviously true, for instance, of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. This... is not remotely compatible with this. beginning to be more than a matter of orchestration. As it appears on the page, a note is a pure and one-dimensional entity. An A is an A, it possesses only pitch. But a real A played on a piano, or an oboe, or a tubular bell, is unique and quite different from all other A's. For 700 years, orchestration lent colour and vitality to paper composition, but it remained secondary to the basic architecture of the music. First the structure, then the orchestration. But by the early 20th century, this paradigm was being questioned too. It was a heightened consciousness of experience and a greater reliance on sound itself to carry a composition, or even to be a composition, that led to a new paradigm rooted in aesthetic sensuality. And this came first through an increased sensitivity to timbre. Early probes were launched into the structural deployment of timbre by a number of late 19th century composers. But it was Schoenberg and his Harmonielehrer who introduced the notion of timbre structure. In the third of his five pieces for orchestra, for instance, Melodic and harmonic motifs are minimized in order to foreground the play of carefully calculated shifting timbres.
or listen to this piano reduction of the opening of Webern's Five Pieces for Orchestra. and now to the music as composed. The orchestration is not an afterthought, it's the heart of the composition. Weber is composing with sound as much, arguably more, than with a pattern of pitches. This was the notion Edgar Varese took as his starting point, and then raised to the level of genius. took sound into three-dimensional space. His was a music in restless and dynamic motion. Pitch relations took second place to a choreography of shards, blocks and parabolas of sound, all moving at different velocities, sometimes together, more often apart. There's no elaborated centre in this music, no orchestrated melody, just the dynamic interaction of quasi-autonomous parts. It cannot be reduced. Its sound is what it is. All of Varese's music, and there's not much of it, a bare 140 minutes in all, moves away from pitch as a source of meaning. The final step to tonal freedom came with ionisation. 
the first major Western composition for unpitched sounds alone. It was scored for 13 percussionists playing 40 different unpitched instruments. This was not a rhythmic exercise, but a complex music of moving lines, sound masses, counterpoints and colour. A fully-fledged composition of immense rigour and complexity, with no reference at all to pitch. Here again, Borrez anticipates the century, ushering in a vastly expanded role for percussion and a vastly expanded library of percussion instruments, both of which are now commonplace in later 20th century music. To avoid argument, Borrez preferred to call his works organised sound, 
and he was exceptionally alert to the potential of new instruments and new technologies. In the early 1930s, he embraced electronics, experimented with gramophone records, and in 1933, attempted to raise funds from the Guggenheim Foundation and Bell Laboratories to develop an electronic music studio. He was turned down. The world would have to wait another 16 years for that, and look to France, not America, to make it happen. Like Granger, Varese was convinced that machines would revolutionise music and deliver undreamed-of power to composers. And when he was given an Ampex tape recorder in 1953, an early model donated anonymously, he immediately set to work devising tape interpolations for Désert, his first new composition for 17 years. This is the first of the three tape interpolations. Three years later, when Phillips commissioned the architect Le Corbusier to design a pavilion for the World's Fair, Corbusier insisted on involving Varese. The building, he said, would be a poem of light and sound. For the first time, using 425 speakers and an extremely complex routing system, Varese was able to fulfil his original dream and move his sounds physically through space. The poem Electronique completed in 1956, is both Varese's homecoming and an encomium to the poetry of noise.
parallel with the extension of the role of percussion, the extension of composition into manipulations of sound rather than pitch became standard operating procedure in the world of Western art music, so we won't need any further examples. Instead, we'll look at more extreme or unusual probes into timbre or noise that test more uncompromising possibilities. Here is one, a narrower but more extreme probe into the structural use of timbre, launched in 1959 by Giacinto Chelsea in this orchestration of not much more than a single note, in which, in the absence of melody or rhythm, and with minimal harmony, tone colour provides the main aesthetic focus. This is from his Quattro Pezzi per Orchestra, number four. Of course, all drone music trades heavily on timbre for its effects, but for many this is not their main objective. Drone music is a deep vein, and we shall be returning to it in more depth, under a different heading. Bringing elements of Schoenberg and Chelsea neatly together is this short probe by Canadian plundophonian John Oswald. As with the Webern and Schoenberg examples, this music is fully articulated, but calculated to highlight timbral rather than pitch modulations. This is John Oswald's 1991 Klangfarben Probe.
Olivier Messiaen was another composer who flew subtle missions into this territory, which he called Melodie des Timbres, mixing shifting chords quietly behind foreground tones to create delicate modulating timbral movement. I see the time is up. In part five, we'll dig deeper into timbre and look at the grain of sound, extended technique and electrification. I'm Chris Cutler. This has been Probes. <laughs> <laughs>